This is the Brewer to Brewer podcast from All About Beer, a conversation that goes beyond the brew house and into topics that matter to brewing professionals and curious beer drinkers. Visit allaboutbeer.com and follow on social media. And to support journalism in the beer space, check out patreon.com slash allaboutbeer. I'm Eric Larkin of Cohesion Brewing. And this week, I'm glad to be talking with my friend Lee Cleghorn of Outer Range Brewing. We'll get into it in just a moment, but first, this message. First Tea is a proud sponsor of the Brewer to Brewer podcast. They've been working with brewers on a wide range of ingredients and delicious beers. First Tea combines the flexibility of order sizes with the experience you need to create innovative and successful tea beers. They get you the most direct from farm tea selection, so you are working with flavorful and consistent products. You can find more about First Tea's collaborations with brewers and tea ingredients by visiting blog.firsttea.com. That's blog.firsdtea.com. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited to talk with my friend Lee here. It's been, been a while since I've seen him because uh, he's out in another country building a brewery, but um, definitely been someone I've been friends with in with the industry for a while. So Lee uh, from Outer Range Brewing of, of Frisco and soon to be Salange France as well. Um, yeah, I just wanted to give a quick intro. I, I know Lee's been around the, the industry for a little while now, but um, why don't you go into kind of some of your history in the brewing career, how you guys, how you got into brewing and where you started and uh, yeah, we'll go from there. Well, first of all, I'll say I'm just really excited to be on this podcast and excited to talk to you, Eric. It has been a little while. So I'm looking forward to our conversation here. Uh, my name is Lee Cleghorn, and I'm the head brewer and co-founder of Outer Range Brewing Company, started in Frisco, Colorado in 2016. And I co-founded that with my wife, Emily. It's been a great ride, so we decided to just have a little bit more pain and open up another brewery. So right now we're in the middle of opening up a second location in France. I guess we'll get more into that, but I guess how we got started. Um, I was an army brat and so moved around a lot and I was in Belgium for high school. So I was um, 16 years old, bar hopping with my friends in downtown Brussels and just like tasting hundreds of great Belgian beers. And it was an amazing time to be alive. And then I moved back to the States for college and couldn't, couldn't drink terrible beer at parties um, after going through that. Um, wonderful experience in Belgium. So I started making beer. I was at Boston University and there was one homebrew shop in Cambridge and my roommate, Steve, who was a lot smarter than, smarter guy than I was, um, at least scientifically, would, he and I would go over there and, and buy a bunch of ingredients and haul it back on the tea to our dorm room and make beer. And so that's how I got into it. And uh, I homebrewed for a long time before switching over into the real beer world. Um, I went into the army after, after college, did that for about 10 years. And beer was always my outlet uh, when I wasn't doing army things. And eventually it got so serious that um, I decided I either need to like sell everything I had related to beer or just get into beer. And so uh, my wife and I decided to get out of the army um, get into the beer world for me and her. She got, uh, got some experience in marketing and uh, 
I did the American Brewers Guild uh, course, which I know you did as well, Eric, uh, with Steve Parks. And that was awesome for me. I got all these questions after homebrewing for like uh, 12 or 14 years that finally got answered because I was, you know, lucky enough to be in that course. And, uh, and I got an internship at a brewery. And then we developed a plan to come back to Colorado. Basically, used the brewery to do that. Uh, that's where we initially met, and uh, we opened up Outer Range in 2,400 square feet in Frisco, Colorado, and it has taken over our lives since. <laughs> yeah, so I guess it's. Uh, I kind of want to get into how how we met because I think that's a an interesting little little background. So, I mean, I, I think I got captivated with Colorado a lot of the same way you did with the mountains and the culture that can exist around. Some of the mountains here is definitely, you know, a, a magical place, and it's uh, what again what drew me out here. But um, so I was working at another brewery, Odd Thirteen Brewing, out here in Colorado, and uh, both of our breweries were definitely on the forefront of the hazy IPA, New England IPA, whatever it's called now, uh, in in Colorado. And so I had rented a ski condo uh, with a bunch of friends, and I remember just dropping case after case of beer at your spot. Um, but I, I do remember, I, I think it's a, I think I've told you this story. The first, one of the first times I went out there, you know, it, it was in what kind of looked like a strip mall. It's a very modern updated strip mall, you know, nice and, and fancy, not like a lot of the suburban ones here in Denver. But I remember thinking to myself, I've, I've given a lot of these strip mall breweries a try and sometimes they're good. Sometimes maybe not. And we'll see how this one goes. And I walked in and I was like, wow, these, these beers are really good. Uh, I'm definitely going to be stopping by here because our condo was just a couple minutes drive. So started dropping cases that offer you guys and got to know you pretty, pretty quick. And uh, yeah, it's been, it's been great having a friend up in the mountains every time we, we go up there. But um, yeah, that was, that was back when the place was just, just a tiny little, you know, about, about five, six tables you fit in there. Yeah. Five or six tables. Um, everybody's slammed in there in ski gear. And for those who don't know where Frisco, Colorado is, it's uh, right in the middle of Summit County, Colorado. We've got six ski resorts within 30 minutes and uh, we're at 9,000 feet. Pretty high up there, but people still like to drink a lot of beer, that elevation. <laughs> um, but yeah, I remember Eric coming into the, to the bar early on and I was really amazed. Uh, first of all, the beer that you were cranking out, at Odd 13, thought it was really fantastic, um, especially IPAs in Colorado. I thought it's one of the top top producers. and But more impressive was just the amount of ski days that you were getting. I saw you a lot in Summit County. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can I can tell you that opening a brewery has diminished those ski days greatly. So uh, as, as, as you know, I feel like you can probably corroborate that, that you got more ski days in when you were not a brewery owner uh than you than you do now yeah 100 percent. yeah i listened to your your podcast and i heard you say your your record is 45 days and my record is also 45 days but uh it was prior to beer <laughs> i, I was i was brewing i was brewing but not owning a brewery but yeah you i mean i, th I do think it's kind of interesting one of the things i was curious about um you had i know you had an internship for you know, a period through the course, but you jumped from that internship right into owning a brewery, right? Like, was there, was there any thought to getting more professional development on the brewing side, or were you pretty convinced that that was the route to go when you guys were looking at that? Well, I was, uh, I was pretty convinced. I also wanted to start a company. I was just really excited about that. Um, I've been homebrewing for, uh, you know, a long, a relatively long time, over 10 years. And I felt like I could 
problem solved my way out of opening a brewery <laughs> and both figured we'd start in a small space like we did. And uh, we didn't really have any plans beyond that at that point. Um, so the whole idea was just to brew enough beer to stay in business. And um, yeah. fortunately that's worked so far. <laughs> Not <going well. laughs> yeah. Uh, and yeah, I guess, um, you know, I'm kind of curious to hear some of the, you know, those early days at Outer Range to the, obviously you guys got attention pretty quick. Um, you know, what, what do you think were the major elements of kind of success for you guys building that early, early push? You know, obviously being at the forefront of Hazy's, I think was helpful. A lot of breweries that, the first breweries that were doing that in Colorado definitely got a lot of natural buzz and you guys were right there, you know, with uh, the 10 or so of us that sort of started it off. But um, what else do you think played, played a role in that early, uh, buzz for you guys? Well, I think one thing that really helped us out a lot was our focus. So when we opened, uh, we knew we were in Colorado, super, you know, saturated state as far as breweries go. And we knew that there is a sophisticated drinker that existed there as well. And we felt that that gave us some room to not have to play to everybody. So when we started out, we only brewed, we actually started, I, I wanted to brew mostly Belgians and anybody who's run a brewery could tell you that's a terrible business plan. Um, but we did start that way. We brewed mostly Belgians, but the idea was we were only going to brew Belgians and IPAs. And the reasoning was that uh, those were the two styles that I was passionate about. Uh, I thought the market was big enough to allow us to do, um, you know, just a small subset of, of, the beer offerings out there and still be okay. But primarily we wanted to focus on only, only um, those two categories so that we could get good at them. I thought if we try to brew everything right out the door, then we just get lost in a million different styles and, and, you know, probably hit one or two. Okay. But, but uh, maybe not all of them. And, I also knew that because there are so many breweries that you had every beer that you have to put out, every beer that you put on the, on the board has to be a great beer. And, you know, if you're putting out a subpar beer, especially in a place like Colorado, market's going to react quick to that and people are not going to come back. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the level of beer you guys are putting out was definitely a big part of attracting the customers right at the beginning. So, um, yeah, I guess kind of moving into, you know, one of my big topics that I'm really curious to, to hear about. So like I mentioned at the front, you know, you guys are opening a brewery in Salonche in France. Um, John and I were chatting just before you got on. I don't, I know Stone obviously opened a brewery internationally that now isn't open anymore. Um, but I'm, you know, you guys are one of the only U.S. breweries I know that's really expanded into Europe. Um, and I, I'm super psyched about it because I still remember talking with your wife, uh, Emily in the upstairs of Kenosha during what well, I think it was a big beers fest. And we were just, it was one of the very first times we met and talking about where are you from, where you've been? I said, Oh, I studied abroad in France. She's like, Oh, I love France. I want to live there someday. And I was like, Oh, that's like, I don't know how you like having a business here. How are you going to do that? And we kind of joked about, you know, you'd have to open a brewery in France to do that. And, uh, I take absolutely no credit for this idea, but um, I do. I think it's crazy, you know, remembering that conversation so vividly uh, and then seeing you guys do it. It's, you know, there's not a lot of people that say things like that and actually follow through with it. And I think it speaks to the drive and tenacity y'all have. But I'm curious to hear from your perspective, you know, 
why why France? When when did it become a reality? Like when when was this something that? Because again, I know it was something you had discussed very early on, and and uh, but when did it kind of become a reality? And why did you guys pick this place? Yeah, I think back when we had that conversation, uh, Emily was just talking about her general life. We had no idea that we would actually ever expand into France back then, uh, for sure. Yeah. Uh, we were just yeah. trying to stay afloat where we were. Oh, yeah, no, she yeah, she was like, she <laughs> thought that I was a total joke. And I was like, yeah, I think, I mean, that's probably how you'd have to do it, right? Like, how else are you going to live there? So, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, it actually didn't, uh, things didn't come to fruition um, until relatively recently. I mean, we, we thought a lot, we've actually done a lot of research about what we were going to do, because I guess the story of our brewery is, you know, we started out with a 15 barrel brew house, two vessel system in a very small production space. Um, I think the production space is probably like 1700 square feet or something like that. And uh, it maxed out pretty quickly, but we kept figuring out how to add more tanks. Is, <laughs> I mean, Eric was around for some of the shenanigans of us figuring out what different, we created more corners to put uh, vessels and that kept us going for a little while. Um, but I think also, you know, I did an internship in New York and I saw breweries there that were just built off of New York City real estate realities, which is that you have to make every square foot count. And so when we came out to Colorado, that was just, how I thought about things. And so we built the brewery plan around that. We built a plan to get to 5,000 barrels in 1,700 square feet. Um, and we did that. And then we were maxed out there pretty much. And the question is, what are you going to do next? And a lot of people asked if we would go to Denver, go to the Front Range. And we thought that was kind of the antithesis of our brand, Outer Range, which exists to be exactly the place that you talked about coming off the slope, wanting to get a great craft beer and just providing our customers a place to like relive their day on the mountain. And so we couldn't, we couldn't do that down in Denver. We, we felt that that wasn't, you know, the right play. And so we looked at other locations. We looked at other locations throughout Colorado. We looked at other locations uh, in the U S just kind of looking for another place we could replicate out of range and, and we never really found it. And then um, during COVID, we started talking more about how, like everybody did, miss travel. So right after COVID, we started traveling more. And we went to uh, we went to France again. And I've spent a lot of time over here just from living in Europe a couple times. And so we went over to Europe again and and uh, brewed some beers with people actually uh summer of um 2021 and that after we got back from that trip after doing a bunch of collabs during that fall i was just really thinking about the wonderful part about collaborations is that you get exposed to how other people think about beer you know from every aspect i guess you know a lot of people think collaboration is just about the marketing but i think from a brewer perspective it's about just being able to spend a day with another brewer or another brew team and think or learn to think how they do uh, from a recipe creation standpoint, of course, but also just like brewery design and how people are uh, making things work in their own, in their own space. And every brewery is different. 
And it's like, a, it's a beautiful thing. And you learn something every time you do a collaboration with somebody. And when we did a bunch of collaborations in Europe, we learned a bunch of different ideas that, you know, different from what we would learn by doing collaborations in the US. And so we were sitting back at home in fall 2021 after that trip. And we started talking to our uh, one of our best friend couples out there, which is a French couple that we knew in New York. And they had since moved back to Europe. And we said, hey, what if we do this thing and, and start a brewery over there in a mountain location? And uh, we, can, we can basically learn from two markets at the same time and pass those lessons back and forth among our brew teams. And oh yeah, it's also gonna be a shit ton of fun. So like, if we can pull, if we can pull this off, like, you know, our, our team is going to love it. Our, you know, we can rotate brew teams back and forth um, and other members on the, in the company, then it's just going to create a fantastic, fantastic ecosystem that will really just help our company survive for a really long time. And it's always what we wanted to do is build a company that lasts. And so that was really at the, at the base of, this idea um, to do a location in France. Yeah, I mean, I think I think with where you're set up in Colorado, you know, you get so many people that love to travel, love to explore, love to get out there. Like up in Summit County, you know, there's a lot of people that come from all over the world to live there and and play there and spend time there. So it definitely kind of feels like it fits. And the second mountain location obviously makes sense. How how far is it actually from Chamonix Mont Blanc? That's the closest ski hill, right? It is, yeah. So Solange, where we are building the brewery now in France, is is basically like the Frisco of the Chamonix ski area. So it's the it's the town where all the locals live. Things are a little bit cheaper. The you know that's where the big grocery stores are. Uh, it doesn't have a ski mountain itself, but you can look up and see a bunch of different mountains. And it's right below Mont Blanc. You look up to Mont Blanc from the brewery, and gorgeous um and Chamonix is probably you know 15 or 20 minute drive from there Mijev is there there's a couple other ski resorts just just right around so we that was one thing we wanted to do is is find a location as close to Frisco as we could and we got lucky and I feel like we really did (laughs) (laughs) you think so so far so far it kind of feels like I I haven't been able to visit yet I'm excited to get out there but so far it feels like the the Frisco of France basically it does, yeah. And you know what? Uh, people, and I, I know uh, we've talked about this, and you know, there's a perception that France is only a wine country, um, but that's not true. There's a ton of breweries around. Uh, there's a lot of breweries in the mountains, in the Alps. We're right by the Swiss border as well, and the Italian border. Um, Italy has a great craft beer scene, and uh, Switzerland has a ton of craft breweries as well. So yeah. it's actually a pretty healthy beer scene. There's some great uh, craft beer bars around. It's definitely growing like crazy. Um, I think that, uh, uh, our brew house manufacturer said that France is their, their biggest market right now. Oh, it's crazy. Yeah. That was, I mean, that kind of leads into exactly what I was hoping to touch on, you know, in this conversation, in this part of the conversation too, is yeah. I mean, obviously France has exported wine and been known for wine. They've marketed themselves as a wine place for a century, if not two centuries. I mean, for 
a long time. They said, we're, we're wine people. And, you know, you talk about the daily beverage of France. It's, it's, people are going to say wine, not beer. So, yeah, I'm kind of curious. Um, you know, I know you guys have done events in Paris and I've, I've been lucky to travel to France, you know, a good bit too. And like the Parisian beer bars, there's obviously not as many as wine bars, but they do exist and you can see the excitement. Um, you know, going into some of the French bottle shops, you see some of those Belgian beers, the Cantillons that don't sit on the shelf here and do sit up like are available there. So there's obviously you're surrounded by beer countries, like you said, too. Switzerland has an incredible lager brewing culture and history um, as well. So, yeah, I'm curious to hear a little more about like how the beer scene is growing in France and like, is it growing towards IPAs? Is it growing towards lager and craft lager or, you know, what what styles are people interested in? in France? Does it mirror a lot of the U.S. or is it different? Yeah, I'll say, uh, you know, you're totally right. France is absolutely a wine country, which is, is great because everybody knows brewers like to drink a lot of wine in their time yeah. off. So for me, it's yeah. fantastic. Um, you can drink wine and not be as critical. And, you know, it doesn't make your brain spin like drinking a beer. <laughs> uh, but it's, a, it's, you know, the, the young part of France is crazy about beer and there's a ton, you know, there's, I think there's around 2000 breweries in France. Now, most of them are very small, you know, three to five hectoliter systems. I mean, very small, uh, but the quality of beer every year, past couple of years of, of the craft beer has just been growing at an unbelievable rate. I mean, almost every six months you could do a flavor check-in and it has grown like leaps and bounds, I think, across the industry. There is a, uh, you know, definitely a growing fascination with IPAs, hazy IPAs, but their their development of the market here has obviously been a lot later than, than it has been for us, but it's going so much faster. And Western Europe in general, I think, is really developed already with craft beer. Obviously, Nordic countries and the UK um, have just crazy craft beer scenes and Italy and Spain the same. Um, France is maybe a little bit behind that, but I think it's it's catching up super quickly. You walk around Paris now and on the streets, young people are drinking beer. I don't, I don't know if that is, uh, you know, a trend that's going to go on forever or, or what or what it exactly means, yeah. but uh, but it's definitely a healthy industry. There's some brewers making fantastic IPAs. Uh, Popin is a brewery uh, north of us, so about two hours, and their hazy IPAs hold up to any American hazy IPA maker now. And they're also just not doing the haze wave; they're doing everything. You know, they're doing fruited sours, getting into lagers. You know, small craft breweries doing lagers like you, and um, it's a cool thing to. It's really cool to watch and 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 see it, particularly because it's evolving so fast because they have all these outside influences um, that they can draw on. Yeah, yeah, no, I think it's it's definitely there's so much more, uh, I guess, diverse and like entrenched beer culture that you see in Europe that I feel like people do draw upon. And it's always super interesting to me, especially you know we make obviously Czech style beers here and like. I've noticed in the Czech beer culture, a lot of the younger breweries, like this newer generation, and a lot of times it is people whose family was in beer or had breweries, they're starting to make, you know, strawberry milkshake IPA or hazy IPA or, you know, and they always have 
the lager because in the Czech Republic, I don't think you can have a brewery that doesn't make at least a lager or two. But um, do you think that like IPAs are kind of for, for France, obviously without that more entrenched beer to guard would be the only style that I think you could associate with that country. But do you see a style like is IPA the majority of these craft breweries flagship? Is that what most people are pushing out to the forefront? I mean, it's, it's IPAs and sours, so yeah. I think uh, I also think it's really young. And one one reason I'm really excited about our timing here, you know, we're going to open up in the sometime spring of 2023. Uh, I feel like the the craft beer scene will uh, pretty much get on par with everywhere else, and is is about there already. And so then it'll be a great time for it to mature a little bit and and see what sort of niches play out from the market yeah because you know i guess one of your questions is where where does the market go next i mean hazy ipas have run full steam back to west coast back to loggers i think craft brewers are trying to push loggers really hard you know a little bit ahead of the market um but all of us are crazy about it and um I just don't know where it's going to go next, but uh, it's going to be fun to to be here and see. Yeah, awesome. Um, well, we're going to take a short break for this message and then come right back for more of this conversation with Lee Claycorn of Outer Range Brewing. First Tea is a proud sponsor of the Brewer to Brewer podcast. They've been working with brewers on a wide range of ingredients and delicious beers. First Tea combines the flexibility of order sizes with the experience you need to create innovative and successful tea beers. They get you the most direct from farm tea selection, so you are working with flavorful and consistent products. You can find more about First Tea's collaborations with brewers and tea ingredients by visiting blog.firsttea.com. That's blog.f-i-r-s-d-t-e-a.com. Uh, yeah, welcome back to the podcast here. Uh, we're kind of chatting with Lee Claycorn out of an Outer Range Brewing about their new international brewery. Um, so I just have one more kind of question in that in that realm for you, Lee. I know, um, obviously, building a business is one thing in the U.S. and it, you know, building a business comes with its own challenges and unique perspectives and laws and regulations, all that stuff. Um, I just wanted to hear maybe if you had a synopsis. I, obviously, this could be its own whole own podcast, but opening a brewery in a foreign country. Uh, I'm curious to hear some of the trials, tribulations, again, just a snapshot of what that, what that looks like for, you know, maybe brewers or people in management listening to this podcast that have been involved in some of that here in the U S but never in a, in a different country. Yeah. I would, I'm very happy to talk about it. I mean, I could, this could be a regular beer <laughs> session or this could turn into therapy like real quick. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, first of all, we, you know, the way we've struck, I'll just talk about how we structured the company over here, how it's been possible, and then maybe the challenges that we've had. So we structured it so that Outer Range Alps is the company in France, and it's a subsidiary of Outer Range in the US. And we have structured it that way for a couple of reasons. One of them is because there's a visa loophole actually, where if, if somebody works for a subsidiary in a foreign country for a year, at least I know in the EU, then they can go back to the US and work for the parent company. And we've actually tried to hire European brewers before and have been unable to do that after like spending money on visa lawyers. And so we're excited about that possibility. 
in the years ahead to send Europeans back and Americans over here. And then uh, the way that we were able to do that is because we have French partners. So we brought our French friends in, Kate and Charles, as partners in the France subsidiary. And that is the only way that this would have been possible. Um, it is such a conceptually different way of doing business. Everything from structuring the business to how they do finance is so culturally different that uh, it has taken me months to like wrap my head around just some of the ways that it happens. And one of the examples of that is this idea that exists in France, which we do not have in the US, um, of social capital. So there is this thing that exists called social capital where when you start a business, you have to declare a certain amount of money to fund an account that is a account just to demonstrate the amount of social capital you have. And social capital is basically the money you're willing to throw into an account to let the, all of your future suppliers, uh, vendors see so they can show or so you can show um, how credit worthy your business is um, based off of that sum. And so you have to pick a certain amount of money that you think is the right amount of money so that you don't risk too much capital, but you also, you know, show to those people that they should do business with you. So what is that amount? When we started doing this, I, like, <laughs> I have no idea. Is this going to be like, are we talking like, is this all the money that we're going to spend? Is this, or are we putting, is this like hundred euros? Are we going to put like a million euros? Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what is this? Yeah. And uh, so that, that was, you know, one of the things that we learned, but um, it's such a pervasive idea that every time you do some sort of contract, even if it's renting a forklift, which I rented a forklift this past month to download a bunch of stuff and you need to have with you a stamp that is an official stamp that you have to get created based off the paperwork of your company that lists your company and it has the social capital amount on it. And so when you go <laughs> to rent your forklift, you have to, if you're renting a forklift or if you're getting a loan from a bank or whatever you're doing, you have to stamp your piece of paper with this stamp that shows your social capital from this official stamp. And that's how people determine if they're going to do business with you, um, which is just like totally a, such a different idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously we have, we have business references, but like it doesn't require cash, you know, down like that, you know, I, I've had to put business references to work with certain people and they say, okay, you know, I'm going to call that company and do they pay their bills on time? Are they good customers? But yeah, the idea of, Hey, hey don't lose the stamp. It sounds like but, you can't but lose the stamp. Yeah. <laughs> but B, like, yeah, it's, that's a, it's, it's definitely a, a very foreign concept to me. And I'm sure y'all will come up against, you know, a thousand more of these cultural societal norms that will be interesting. So I'm, I'm excited to keep hearing, hearing the stories, but yeah, that's, yeah. that's awesome. So yeah, um, yeah, that's just one anecdote. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, one tiny snapshot for sure. Um, yeah, I wanted I wanted to switch topics real quick. Uh, I I definitely um, I have a 
you know, we've, we've obviously opened again a brewery in the Czech culture and um, the war in Ukraine was starting, you know, right around the time that I took my most recent visit to the Czech Republic. And, um, you know, there's a huge emotional connection for people in Czech uh, who have been occupied by Russians. And, um, you know, they had a long period of communism in that country that they're very still fresh. It's very upsetting to them, um, you know, and they're very supportive of Ukraine. And, and still to this day, and I, I do, I, I still, I try and take Czech language lessons and I talk with someone who's living in Prague, uh, a young, young guy, I think he's just getting out of college. Um, and it's been really interesting picking his brain on how the Czechs are seeing this, this conflict and how they interact with it. Um, but yeah, you can, you can tell it's especially poignant for Czech, Czech citizens to see this invasion of Ukraine by Russia and, and how that's unfolded. So, you know, I was, I was really, um, I thought it was an amazing gesture that you took to, to go out there and make connections. I know you have a myriad of ways that you've connected with that country and, and what's happening there right now. Um, but yeah, I wanted to hear a little bit more about the, the trip and, you know, um, to tell people who maybe don't know about what you, what you were going out there for and why you were going out there. And then um, obviously you were out there beer focused, uh, visited some breweries and are using beer to help uh, try and continue to help the people of Ukraine. And yeah, I just wanted to give you some time to tell that story a little bit. Yeah, thanks. Um, I guess I guess it really started uh, back this past summer. I did a collaboration with a Polish brewery called Pinta, which is uh, kind of like the, they're like the father of the new craft beer wave in, in Poland. And uh, they were talking about the Ukrainian refugees that um, they had received. And I talked to a couple of Ukrainian refugees there. And I guess off of that, I started talking to a couple of Ukrainian breweries and I asked um, just on Instagram, I asked how we could support. And really what I was asking was I thought we would do another, because we've done, as so many breweries have, done a beer in support of Ukraine and donated the proceeds to some sort of cause. And so I was asking basically what, what cause they wanted us to donate to. And instead, one of them wrote back, way you can support is come here. And I was like, oh, <laughs> all right. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I thought, you know, I thought about it. And, you know, I'm an American brewer in Europe right now. I'm very close. I have a military background, so I'm familiar with, like, how to read those situations at least a little bit. So I decided, you know, if not me, then who the hell is going to go? So I said yes. And I carved out a couple of days in my calendar and, you cannot fly into Ukraine on a commercial airline. So I flew into Poland, back into Poland, rented a car and uh, rented a car to go over and do a collaboration with uh, PZDK Brewery. And I tried to drive the car across, didn't happen. They wouldn't let me drive the car into Poland. Uh, so then I had to go to a different border crossing and walk over. But I actually was taking with me, I brought a bunch of beer out of range beer and and uh Yakima Chief sent me a 44 pound box of mosaic to my house in France and so I took that with me too and we were gonna uh, do, do an IPA with with our hops so I ended up lugging all that shit over the border and walking <laughs> just sweating my ass off it was like <laughs> after midnight by the time I got over there so you just you just like, ditched you know, the car you just ditched the I car at the, the car. border. I, yeah, yeah, I just parked the car and I pulled everything out and I walked across and um, it was kind of a surreal experience because there's uh, 
you know, on the, on the Polish side, there's a bunch of uh, tents set up uh, from humanitarian organizations like UNICEF is out there receiving refugees. And, and the only people crossing the border are women for the most part, you know, because all the men are not allowed to leave. And so I walked over the border with hops and a beer, and then I found this guy. There were no buses or really ta- I found a guy, an older guy, who said he would give me a ride. So I got in his car and I got a ride <laughs> uh, <laughs> about an hour and a half in. Um, Is there any any cell any cell service any any phone service at all? There's no. Um, there is once you get in. Once you get through, there's cell service. Yeah, they've but got you were, cell service. I mean, uh, but at the border, at so, the border, you were you were definitely like you had no no way to communicate with the people you were trying to meet up with. Uh, correct. That's correct. Yeah, I had no way to. <laughs> <laughs> they weren't even near there. They were like uh, seven hours away. I just figured my plan was just go, and uh, you know, adjust as as things flew in my direction, and that's what I did. <laughs> And so I went across the border and uh, got a ride in and I found a hotel and uh, woke up the next morning to a beautiful city. And, you know, I know you are super into coffee, just like I am. And so the first thing I wanted to do is find a good coffee place. And there's a bunch of good roasters there. And so I, I found this place called uh, Black Honey, which is a coffee roaster and ordered a cup of coffee. And it was fantastic. And then all these air raid sirens started going off. And I thought it was a drill because nobody was doing anything. So I just sat outside and drank my coffee. And then, <laughs> and then I got a te- then I got a WhatsApp message from this. I was, I'd rent another car. So I had this WhatsApp message yeah. from this uh, uh, the car rental company. And they said, sorry, there's going to be a delay because of the air raid. And I was like, I, it's not a drill and they're like no it's not a drill. it's like okay all right so then i talked to the people at the coffee shop and that day actually they were getting bombed in um in eastern ukraine they didn't get bombed in Lviv. they they got bombed there a week prior to me going they bombed some of the electrical grid there um, but i eventually got my taxi went up and met some amazing brewers in in kind of northwestern ukraine and uh PZDK is a contract brewer. That's who we did the collaboration with. And they're brewing at a brewery called Zen Brewery. And the guys from Zen had this crazy story where they were, um, their initial brewery location where they've been brewing the past couple of years is right on the border of Russia over in Eastern Ukraine. And in, during the invasion, they kept brewing because, you know, their livelihood. And um, eventually they got uh, basically were getting overrun by the Russians. And there's this whole bombardment. And so they evacuated their families to, to uh, Western Ukraine. Like, and then they decided, well, all of the beer in the tanks is like how we're going to pay for food. So we have to go back and get the beer. So they went back and they packaged all the beer and then, they started getting uh, bombed by by the Russians, and so they decided, well, we got to take all our stainless tanks, like, and get them out of here. So they were like getting bombed and like unhooking their glycol and taking their tanks and putting them on rail cars. And and they said by that afternoon, their whole neighborhood had just been like 
totally bombarded. And uh, they shipped all their rail cars out to Western Ukraine and they needed money to survive. So they sold their brewery equipment and now they lease it back from the person they sold it to and, and run their little brewery there. And they're making fucking great beer. Like the guy from Zen Brewery, he, before beer, he worked for a, a water, like a German water treatment company, like a very large company. And so, you know, he's running a whole like mini water program into tanks, like in this tiny little brewery and that he just set up himself. And um, they're just making great lagers, great like IPAs, fruited sours, all this stuff that they're like having friends run ingredients to them from uh, Poland. Um, but yeah, cra- I mean, crazy situation. It was, it was a great trip. Yeah. Yeah. And then I, I kind of, I mean, I definitely have, you know, been, been trying to read as much as I can on the situation there and obviously seeing the, I think the resiliency of the Ukrainian people through this has been pretty wild. And that, that story, you know, paints a pretty uh, poignant picture of how, how much fortitude you have to have to be unhooking your fucking tanks while you're being bombed. Like I can't, I can't even yeah. imagine being yeah. in that and, scenario. You know yeah. And I, the thing that I love about that story is that I think there's basically like two types of brewers. There's brewers that are okay operating. Like the brewers like walk into a brewery that's working totally fine and they can do everything. But the second, you know, something breaks or they have to change something, it's like pulling teeth to get them to react to that situation. And then you have another type of brewer who, you know, I mean, you know how we run it out of range, like things are changing all the time and uh, new tanks or tanks are getting swapped out. And so you have to be that type of brewer that can adjust and solve problems. And I saw, you know, I heard that story from Zen and it's like, if I ever get a chance to hire these guys, like, I'm gonna hire them. <laughs> They're fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I can I can remember. Uh, I've I've walked into you know your brewery with Wyatt, who's uh, you know jack of all trades there and great great guy, yeah. friend of mine. Uh, and I still remember walking in after skiing one time and sitting in the old brew house, and Wyatt walks up to me and he's like, "Hey, so uh, we're knocking out into this tank right now, but I don't have the glycol valve hooked up. Could you can you help me hook this up?" And I was like, "Yep, yeah, I can help you." And like it's you know it's it's crazy to think about that, you know, environment. But yeah, I think like you said, you know, you guys are moving and adjusting and <clears throat> shifting things and growing so rapidly that sometimes you have to be able to do stuff like that. And that's not every day, but there are days in every brewery too, where something breaks and you got to adjust and adapt and improvise and overcome it. And, you know, that's, it's a strong skill set to have. Uh, and it's crazy. I mean, the, the level of Again, fortitude from those Ukrainian brewers is that that's another level for sure. That's another level. It's a whole other level. Yeah. <laughs> that's crazy. So so did you how how are you gonna end up um supporting them? And do you guys have any like continued plans to keep working with those those breweries? Or is this kind of is that is that a trip you're gonna brew a beer? Um or what you know, what's the plan for supporting them? Yeah, so brewing the beer was just a small part. And that was uh, actually why I went. I really was curious, like, how can we really support these guys? And after a couple of days of being with them, I realized that the Ukrainian craft beer market, like all beer markets, is built on disposable income, or all craft beer markets are. And uh, 
you know, that's gone there. So their market is uh, struggling because of that reason. So I, I said, well, how about we just start shipping some of your beer in the US? We can help you guys do that. So we are, our sales manager, Kyle, who's an awesome guy, is helping uh, line up some uh, distributors and importers. And we're just going to help them by getting, basically opening up the US as a new market for their beer. So we're working on yeah. that now. And I think hopefully in the next month or two, we'll have some Ukrainian beer in Colorado. Yeah, that'll be awesome. I look forward to trying it. We'd be happy to serve it here too. But yeah, since we have we have a couple guest apps, but yeah, no, that's that's awesome. I think that's a really lasting way because it doesn't, I mean, even even if this conflict ended tomorrow, you know, there's decades of recovery to happen. I mean, I'm I'm sure you you could probably paint a better picture of what the, the cities look like at this moment, but they're they're not, I don't think they're ready for, you know, instant disposable income once, you know, it, it, whatever way the conflict ends, uh, it's going to be a long road. So, yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Um, awesome. Well, no, I think that was a, a awesome trip that you guys did and inspirational to see, you know, the combination of experiences you have, I think are, like you said, really unique to be able to do that. I don't, I don't know that I would have the idea to even go into a war zone personally, but I know, you know, with your experience being in those areas, you know, you, you knew what to expect. So, um, yeah, personally, I think that's a, it was awesome, awesome to see, um, kind of shifting gears, you know, a little bit, I guess I'm curious, uh, a little anecdote about it. I was drinking a beer from, uh, Westbound and down a, a brewer here in Colorado that done a collaboration with rip brewing, which I don't I actually don't know where they are, but, um, we, we had it on a guest tap. And so I was, they had a can, they dropped off two for me to try. And I was reading the back of this IPA, West Coast IPA that they made. And there was probably about eight different lines about the hops on this can and probably two, two products I had never even heard of before. You know, I, five, you know, not, not three years ago, I was making IPAs. That was our bread and butter. And I feel like the IPA game has changed so much in the last three years that now there's words that I see. And I'm like, I, what is that? Uh, I'm not even aware of what's happening. So I was curious from my perspective or from your perspective, I mean, to hear what is kind of new and interesting in IPA scene, whether it's hot products, hot varietals, what, what are you guys excited about? Uh, you know, IPAs are still your bread and butter, I'm assuming. So, you know, what are you excited about in the IPA world from raw materials, products, process, you know, what, what's getting you uh, interested right now and continue to push that style? Yeah. Um, first of all, I just want to say, I, I do think it's, uh, I'd love your beautiful transition from hazy IPA maker to just like super specific Czech lager and you've like done it so well, but it's also like such a 180. It's hilarious. <laughs> but <for> very, <laughs> very, very different worlds, very different worlds, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I enjoyed worlds, the, but... I enjoyed the hazies, but, the... but I think I, I'm, I feel more at home in this lager world. To, to be honest, but I, I rode the waves, you know, it was, it was fun to try and ride that wave while I was doing it, but. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you killed it on that, you know, one side <laughs> of the wave and you're killing it now. So man of many talents, um, <laughs> but uh, no, it's a good question. Um, I'm actually drinking one of our beers now. I have our people, our team is nice enough to send me our beers because I'm out there drinking them in the tap room in Colorado. So curious what, you know, these recipes are tasting like. And this one that I'm drinking is Midday Moon. Also, also, I never know, I never know what the names of the beers are 
when I write the recipes because the marketing comes up with the names afterwards. So I never, I got create a recipe. I have no idea what it's called. Like, <laughs> how is, uh, you know, whatever beer? I'm like, oh man, I don't know what's it. What, what hops from there? Like, oh, which which hops. recipe like, oh, okay, was that? Yeah. That's, that's that beer. Okay. I can tell you about it now. Um, but uh, this one has, I was excited to get this one because it has some of those hot products you're talking about that are kind of different and new. Um, like hot burst kohatu is in this one. Hot, um, hot burst, hot burst. So yeah, kohatu is a hot varietal, and then this is yeah. hot bursts, which is a product from a company called TNS Total Natural Solutions. Totally Natural Solutions, and they do all natural um, hop extracts. So this is a um, a hop oil, and they like a lot of these uh, providers of different hop products don't tell you, you know exactly how they're doing it but this is a naturally direct or naturally uh extracted hop oil from kohatu that is designed to allow you to put it in the beer without uh creating a bunch of bitterness that you would from other otherwise concentrated oil and so we've been doing a couple products with that um and that's been great just to try to maximize the hop flavors and aromas in a beer without getting too vegetal because there's a as you know there's kind of a delicate balance between how much you know, flavor you can get and how vegetal and green that beer can get. Um, so that's kind of the, the, the tightrope that IPA makers are always walking. Um, and so there's a couple products on the market, like the Hot Burst. Now that we've been using Total Naturally Solutions has a couple others. Um, and I remember you talking about uh, on your on your podcast, the CGX. I think that's pretty much just cryo from Crosby. Uh, we haven't used it because we use cryo from uh, Yakima Chief for the most part. But uh, for those who don't know, cryo is just a, a hot pellet with basically a lot of the vegetal non-oil material removed from it. So you can add more hops, be more efficient in the brew, get better yield, but also you can kind of push, push the flavors a little bit more without making the beer too green. Yeah. So, are you are you guys using are you still able to get all of your american contracts and all those american products in france or are you going to have to be looking for different hops over there i mean I, I would assume ych would ship to you but i know when i was in paris this was five or six years ago you know at that ipa bar i remember asking some of the or the bar owner i'm like where how are they getting these hops like i know brewers in the u.s because they have galaxy and beers and i'm like i know brewers in the u.s they can't get these hops and they were like, yeah, it's yeah. really difficult. Like a lot of suppliers don't send a lot here. So has that changed in the last couple of years? Can you get all those, everything you want over there? It really has changed a lot. I'll tell, I'll just talk about the market and then I'll talk about our situation. Um, you're totally right. I think two years ago, I talked to the Yakima chief uh, hop rep um, in France. And he said that the total Citra allowance they had for France was 5,000 pounds, which <laughs> just to put it in perspective we contract like i think fourteen thousand pounds of citra right now so that's not a lot a year so that's not a lot for a whole country so uh but that has changed a lot there you have yakima chief has both yakima chief and crosby have built facilities in europe yakima chief has one in let me get this right yakima chief has one in brussels outside of brussels and crosby has one in rotterdam so they have large warehouses there and they are supplying uh you know the european market they've always had i think lots of large contracts to supply like northern europe 
um, you know, Sweden. I'm wearing a sticker get shirt right now. They make great IPAs. <laughs> um, they, you know, there's there's been a lot of volume in the U er, in Europe of U.S. hops, but it's increasing a lot more now. And um, so we are. So we, the way that we're doing it is we're we've boosted our contracts for the next couple of years just so we could splice off some of those contracts, and we're going to have that volume shift over to the. Uh, warehouses from the hop supplier companies here and then just draw them like we would regularly do like we do in the US. Yeah. So yeah, that, that infrastructure, I mean, that helps a ton because that's obviously, I mean, making the, that style of beer, I feel like you do, you need certain products and certain hops and if you can't get them, it's nearly impossible to, to make. So I was, I, I figured you guys had made connections to be able to get your own stuff, but that's cool to hear that the rest of the breweries will hopefully have more access to that that as well um to be able to kind of yeah. you know grow grow with you guys and like continue to push that style in that country because you can't you can't drag all those customers along with you it'll be a collection of breweries like it was here in colorado introducing people to the style and pointing out their differences exactly that'll, exactly. that'll be helpful for you guys yeah exactly that's why i'm so happy when i like drink a popon the beer's great like, this is exactly what the market needs you know we need yeah. good beer out there uh, but uh, on the hop issue too something that's come up this year is you know, a lot of the old world hops have really suffered with the global warming going on. I mean, you know, I'm talking about this Saz, you're what are you doing for the next guy? Saz got obliterated by global warming this year. Yeah. I think the crop is down like half or something. Less more more than half. It was 40 40 percent oh. of last year's yields. Last year's yields were record highs, but they're they're yeah 40 percent of any previous year is not great. So <laughs> yeah, so a lot of those old world hops. Um, are not doing well with the heat, but new ones, I guess Mandavaria, Mandarina Bavaria is doing really well. And other newer, you know, uh, fruitier hops that they've bred in Europe have withstood better uh, to those conditions. So it'd be interesting to see how that evolves in the next couple of years. Are you guys are you guys planning on keeping the profile of your IPAs in France the same as in the US? Or do you think you'll approach those differently because of the market or because of the materials or, you know, how, how are you approaching those two, like the different locations? Yeah. So we're hoping that, you know, one location informs the other and vice versa. So the idea is that all the ideas that we have in Colorado will make France better. And the ones we learn from the European market will make Colorado better. We're going to start out with our core beers here. Um, and it's going to be the same beers in both places but we're also ready to adapt. It's going to be the same labels. Can size is going to be a little bit different. It's going to be a, a 440 centiliter can instead of a 16 ounce can, um, but it will be the same beer. And the idea is that we're not going to obviously have the same exact brew schedule, but we are the same company and we want to create the same beers in both places. So um, a lot of that, revolves around the water. So we're going to pay a lot of attention to matching the water profiles in each place. And uh, hope that hope that you can't tell the difference. <laughs> yeah. Well yeah, that's that's definitely a, a big uphill challenge. So that's the best of luck with that. I think I think you guys yeah, will, you'll fit you'll figure it out. You'll get it dialed in. But um, yeah kind of wrap kind of wrapping up. I'm curious uh, you know I know you you drinking your beer and checking out your beer quite a bit, but uh, what what styles do you find yourself drinking most now, or or just in general, what do you find yourself drinking now that you've been 
living in France for, I don't know, six or eight months primarily, uh, maybe, maybe a year. I can't remember. Uh, <laughs> what, what do you find no, yourself? I, <laughs> I've been here for four months, four months, but I'm going back <laughs> to the U.S. a bunch already. Um, but I, I mean, I'm trying the beers on the market, but what I like to drink most is lager. Um, I really can't buy a lot of lager around me. So I went to, uh, I went to drink tech beer or uh, not beer festival, but it was a, a conference around the drink industry in, in Munich. And I brought back um, a shit ton of German lager and it's all gone now. So I think I need to do another trip, <laughs> but that's, that's what I'm most excited about is drinking, you know, old, old world beers. And it's been great. <laughs> Loggers. <laughs> yes. That's, I mean, that's exciting to hear. We, we see it here and in Colorado, it feels like the industry, the support for loggers from people in and, and beer adjacent is is really uh, really quite high. So it's good to hear you're keeping with that tradition over there. But you've got you've got a lot of great ones around you. So um, yeah, I think that's uh, that's pretty much it. So yeah, I think um, as you know, Lee, you'll be you'll be back on the next episode of the show as the host, uh, having a conversation with a brewer of, of your choosing. Uh, that will be on the air in two weeks. So make sure you tune in for that. Um, visit allaboutbeer.com and follow on social media to support journalism and beer in the beer space. And check out patreon.com slash allaboutbeer. I'm Eric Larkin of Cohesion Brewing, and thanks for listening to the Brewer to Brewer podcast. This episode was brought to you by First Tea. First Tea delivers the ingredients and experience brewers need for delicious beers and innovative flavors flexible order sizes, and direct-from-farm teas for your next brew. Find out more about First Tea by visiting blog.firsttea.com. That's blog.firsttea.com.